0: Hello, and welcome to the Keepers of the Flame podcast. This is a show to shine a light into the darkness, to empower women, their support networks, and our communities to weather breast cancer, because together, we weather the storm. But on this ocean, every wave brings you closer to home. And no matter what you think, you are never alone. Hello, and welcome back to Keepers of the Flame podcast, where together we weather the storm. I'm Joyce Williams, your host, and this is episode number 15, Breast Cancer Basics. Being told that you have cancer is perhaps one of the scariest times in your life. I know that it was for me. And initially, I thought that cancer was defined based off of where your cancer is located. So lung cancer in your lungs breast cancer in your breast. But little did I know at the time that there are so many different flavors of breast cancer. And the treatment and care that you receive depends upon what exactly the kind of cancer, specifically the kind of breast cancer is, that you have. And information is meant to empower us not cripple us. So I'm very, very excited to have with us today to talk about these breast cancer basics with us, a breast surgical oncologist. Personally, the Center for Breast Care at Memorial, their physicians and their staff, y'all, they saved my life. And although my breast surgeon has since relocated, I wanted to give a quick shout out to her because Dr. Real, she was just She was truly amazing. I I actually give her credit for saving my life three times. She not only found and removed my cancer, getting cancer the heck out of my body, but she followed my case closely to ensure that I received the best care possible. She knew just when to refer me to medical oncology and then later to radiation oncology. I am here today, alive, with my children, with my husband, because of the work that she did and the support that she gave. And I am forever grateful. And I know that my family is too. So quick shout out to her. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Y'all, our breast surgeons, they play a very important role in our health. They eradicate this awful disease from our bodies. They are therefore our heroes. And the staff at the Center for Breast Care at Memorial, they were just incredibly compassionate and professional. And they helped me navigate through this most terrifying time of my entire life. And as I've said before, We are not in this alone. Y'all, our physicians, they really, really do aim to help us through it as well. You are not in this alone. Together, we will weather this storm, and that includes the wisdom and the support from our physicians as well. Since information is meant to empower us, I am just super pumped and excited for today's episode where we are going to hear directly from one of these phenomenal breast surgical oncologists. Our episode today is a general discussion. It's about academics. It's not a diagnosis because as we've previously mentioned and as we're going to talk about today, there are so many different flavors of breast cancer and every person's body is different as well. So if you want to know what is in your best interest, then you need to take your own bucket of medical information, and talk to your own provider about it. But that being said, let's get smart and learn something new today. Without any more further ado, I'd like to introduce today's very, very special guest and give a warm welcome to breast surgical oncologist, Dr. William Burak Jr. Dr. Burak got his medical degree at Jefferson Medical College in 1987, His residency at the University of Maryland Medical Systems in 1992. He completed his fellowship at Ohio State University Medical Center in 1995. And he works as a breast surgical oncologist at the Center for Breast Care at Memorial University Medical Center in Savannah, Georgia. He's been practicing for now 24 years. Thank you so much for joining us here today, Dr. Birak. We are very grateful to have you taking the time out of your day to speak with us about some of these breast basics. So welcome.
1: Great. Glad to be here.
0: Well, being told that you have cancer, it is perhaps one of the most scariest times in one's life. But I'm a firm believer that information is meant to empower us. So that's what I kind of want to do here today is I used to think that breast cancer was simply that breast cancer until I was diagnosed and once I was diagnosed then I learned that there are so many different flavors it's not a one-stop shop I mean it's like life it's not you just have this you treat it this way everybody's body chemistry is different everybody's cancer is slightly different it's not just a one-size-fits-all thing that being said can you help us better understand some of these different kinds of breast cancer like lobular ductal that kind of stuff
1: yeah Yeah. So um, if I have a patient who comes in with a lump or an abnormal mammogram that needs a biopsy and we do the biopsy, what I'll tell them is the first step is just to figure out whether you have cancer or not. So that takes about two days to get that result back. And then if it is cancer, then we go on to the next set of studies that we do on that biopsy material. Mm -hmm. What we want to find out is what type of cancer is it. um, The major categories based on what cell type in the breast they started from are going to be invasive ductal cancer or lobular cancer. Mm -hmm. Uh, The ductal cancers start from the uh, cells within the ducts, the milk ducts, and the lobular cancers actually start in the glands of the breast. Mm -hmm. They're treated pretty similarly, but uh, there's a big difference in how they look under the microscope and in some ways how they behave. Ductal cancers present more like a lump, while the lobular cancers really are more like a thickening mm-hmm. in the breast. So once we get that information, then the next step is we want to find out a couple of things that help us with the, understand the biology of the tumor, but also under, give us an idea about how to treat the tumor, right? or how to treat the patient with the tumor. So the next would be the grade, and the grade is um, basically how aggressive the cells look under the microscope, the cancer cells. So if mm-hmm. they look a lot like a normal duct cell or a normal mm-hmm. lobular cell, they're called low grade or grade one, But if they've changed a lot through all these division and mitosis from the cancer, then we call it grade three or high grade. And the high grades tend to be a little bit more aggressive than the low grades. Mm -hmm. But we don't stop there. We go on to what are called receptors. And receptors are proteins that are on the cancer cell surface, and they serve to act as a signal for the cell to divide. I'll give you an example. One of the receptors that we look at most commonly is called the estrogen receptor. And all women have circulating estrogen. Younger women have higher levels because it's made in the ovaries. And older women still have estrogen but at much lower levels um, made in the fatty tissues of their body and even in the breast itself. So that estrogen can combine with that protein on the cancer cell. And that protein, once it's it's, um, signaled by estrogen, it tells the cell to divide. So and basically the estrogen acts like fuel. Right. Same with progesterone. And then there's another receptor that we look at, which is called the HER2 receptor. And that's a normal protein that we have on a lot of cells in our body, but in some breast cancers it's what's called uh, overexpressed, means there's too many of those receptors. And the substance in the human that binds to that receptor, kind of like estrogen, but it's called epidermal growth factor type 2. And it's again normal to have that in your body, but some cancer cells get smart and they use it as a fuel to signal the cell to divide. Right. So we group our breast cancer patients into invasive ductal or invasive lobular. And then it's subgrouped into the uh, based on the hormone receptor status and the HER2 receptor. Right. So the most common would be if, it, if the estrogen receptor was positive and the HER2 receptor was negative. That's Uh more associated with women that are a little bit older, postmenopausal, most common type of breast cancer, kind of slow growing in the most uh, most cases. The other end of the spectrum is um, called triple negative, Uh and that's when all of the stains are negative. So estrogen receptor, progesterone receptor, and the HER2 are negative, um, called triple negative. They're usually high grade. They are a lot more aggressive. We mm-hmm. can't treat them like we treat a lot of patients by blocking hormones. We have to give those patients treatment with chemotherapy. It's really all we have. We don't really have right. any targets in that estrogen receptor, or HER2 receptor. And probably the most interesting is the one in between, which is the HER2 positive breast cancer. And it can be estrogen positive or negative. Those patients uh, used to do very, very poorly. So if you had a patient, like when I first started my practice, who we we checked their HER2 status and it was positive. It was a bad prognosis. It was almost like triple negative. But what happened was there were some drugs that were developed, antibodies, that kind of blocked that receptor pathway. And it led to a much, much better outcome. And now if you have a HER2 positive tumor, it's actually the best kind to have.
0: Right. Because there's that treatment, there's that added layer of defense that they can have if it's positive.
1: Highly effective. So um, now the new staging system that came out uh, last year basically says if you're HER2 positive, you do better than if you're the first category, which is the hormone receptor positive, HER2 negative. So those are the subtypes. They're all different varieties. And even within those subtypes, we have uh, different prognosis.
0: Right. Um. Because it not only depends then on the kind of cancer, like where it's found, and then these um, hormone receptors and the HER2, if it's positive or negative, but then also on, did it make it to the lymph nodes? Did it not? How big was it? There's all these other factors that also come into play in determining prognosis. Right, Right. and
1: it's interesting because we used to really use those other factors a lot more than we do now. For instance, the tumor size and the Mm -hmm. lymph node status, the lymph nodes underneath the arm, the axillary nodes. Mm -hmm. That's how patients were staged, and it, the staging system is changing now. We're including those other uh, receptor yeah. because they're so important as far as prognosis. Yeah. So they've been incorporated into the staging system. So st- still, it's worse if you know you have lymph nodes that are involved. But it's, right. even if you have lymph nodes involved, it's it's a highly curable. Right. Um, it's more looking
0: it's, at the. The kind of cell that it actually is, looking more at like the microscopic level of the cancer.
1: Yeah, we call we we'll call it cancer biology yeah. because it tells us um, how it behaves, right? What growth factors it relies on, and then we can target those growth factor mechanisms with different types of treatment, right? And that's how those antibodies for the HER2 are identified. And
0: that I think is really important for any person out there listening to recognize is that that if you're told that you have breast cancer, it's very important to go in and have that conversation with your provider about, well, what does this mean? What kind is it? Because as you said, your treatment is going to depend on all the answers to those questions.
1: That's right. So that's a real important part of the first step in Deciding treatment is just to kind of lay out all the that information. It's a lot of information for right. people to digest, but if you break it down into just thinking about what makes that cancer grow mm-hmm. and what can we do to block to that, stop it. Then right. we have the other treatments besides surgery. Surgery is still the mainstay treatment, but all the other treatments are really based on reducing the risk of it coming back somewhere else in the mm-hmm. body over right. you know the next five to right. ten years.
0: So let's talk about treatment, but let's talk about um, the different kinds of surgery. For so there's there's two kinds of surgeries. There's lumpectomies and mastectomies. Mm-hmm. So for those that are very unfamiliar with all this, help expl- us understand the difference.
1: Yeah. So there are two types of surgery, and they both basically have the same uh, long-term recurrence rate. Mm-hmm. Used to be, you know, a long time ago, it was the radical mastectomy, which was really deforming and backed off of that and then it was the modified radical. And uh, studies were done in the 80s that looked at just removing the tumor and then providing radiation treatments to the surrounding breast tissue compared to removing the entire breast and basically the survival rates and recurrence rates. Survival rates were the same and recurrence yeah. rates were really close. So we moved toward lumpectomy and radiation. Right. Uh, and we still do that in the majority of patients. Right. Uh, Day surgery, you go in and you leave the same day. We check the lymph nodes and make sure that they're not involved with what's called a sentinel lymph node biopsy. Mm -hmm. And the recovery is is really quick. So most patients, 60 to 70% of our patients, that's what we do. Is the lumpectomy. Yeah. Right. And there are different ways of giving the radiation. Sometimes we can give it in the operating room all at once, and that's all the radiation patient needs. Sometimes mm-hmm. we have we give it after surgery for anywhere from three to six weeks. There are certain circumstances where we don't have the choice or the woman right. doesn't have the choice of the lumpectomy and radiation versus the mastectomy. Right. A couple examples of that would be if there are more than one tumor in that same breast in different areas that, you know, if we did two lumpectomies, it would lead to not a very good you cosmetic would, right. outcome. So it's better to do the mastectomy and some sort of reconstruction. Mm -hmm. Um, If the the patient can't get radiation for some reason, some women with connective tissue disorders or they've had previous radiation, you can only get so much radiation. If their tumor is really large and we don't have a way to shrink it down before surgery, sometimes we can give chemo before surgery or hormone therapy to reduce the size so that we can convert somebody from needing a mastectomy to a lumpectomy. Right. The other situation is if they have a really, really strong family history Mm -hmm. um, of breast and ovarian cancer, particularly if they get the genetic testing and test positive for a mutation. Mm -hmm. Then what we do is we look at the type of mutation that they have. This is uh, called hereditary breast cancer. and Some of those mutations, the chance of getting a second breast cancer, like in the opposite breast, is quite high, sometimes up to 50%. So if the woman's younger, we may counsel them to say, hey, look. It may make sense to have bilateral mastectomies,
0: which means both
1: both breasts. Mm-hmm. Yep, prof- you know the other one is not a treatment mastectomy, but it's more to prevent breast cancer in the future, okay. and that's really been shown to help with long-term survival rates in that population. Right. If someone doesn't have a family history or a lot of risk factors, removing the other breast, you know, just prophylactically or just in case, doesn't make a lot of sense. Right. There are certain circumstances where it might be done. But for the most part, we're looking at women who have a real strong family history or genetic mutation.
0: Right. So you really have to weigh everything about that patient. It's highly individualized. Their cancer is individualized. Their family history is individualized. So people out there listening, they need to make sure that they take everything about them and they go and they talk to their own provider and lay it all out there. This is, this is me, everything about me, and then see how everything unfolds from there.
1: Yeah, the it's interesting that the, there's a lot of variability in the tumor types. There's a lot of variabilities in the treatments, but there's also a lot of variability in the patient's personality and what's important to them. Right. And so we'll have some patients who want to preserve their breasts, and you know that's the most important thing to them. Mm-hmm. And you know we'll be aggressive in treating them to try to get them to convert from a mastectomy to a lumpectomy. And then we have the other spectrum where. I I get a lot of women who come in and the first thing they say is, I have cancer, just take both of my breasts off. (laughs) And so we kind of have to walk them off the cliff. Right, right. Because really it's not helping them. The more aggressive surgery doesn't lead to an improved survival. But they're so nervous about the chance of getting the breast cancer back in that breast or the other breast. But the reality is that their chance of recurrence is is essentially the same, whether they have a lumpectomy or mastectomy. Right but some women just don't want to have a mammogram every year. Yeah, Just the fear of all that and another biopsy drives them in the other direction. So not only do you have to treat the tumor, but you have to really, really focus on what the patient's needs are and
0: where they stand with digesting and processing through everything. All right, let's talk about the drains. So if anybody has had a mastectomy, then during surgery, they insert the drains. Tell us about those, like why they're inserted.
1: Right, so when we do a mastectomy, what we're doing is we're removing uh, the breast tissue, but we're trying to preserve as much of the patient's own skin as possible. So what you do when you do the surgery is you're creating what are called uh, skin flaps. It's hard hard to explain, but basically if you thought about your hood on your car, okay, and you needed to open it, well, it's easy to open because there's a space between the hood and the engine. Well, think of the hood as the skin and the engine as the breast tissue, but it's they're connected. Yes. So during yeah. surgery, we have to lift the hood up, but we have to break that connection. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't want to make it too close to the hood because that'll compromise the blood supply in those flaps, the hood flaps, we'll call them. They may not have enough blood to survive, and there's a problem with wound healing. If we go too close to the engine, then we leave too much breast tissue behind and mm-hmm. that can lead to a higher recurrence rate. Right. But by doing that, we're creating that empty space. So when you close down the incision, there's that potential space and your body's reaction to cutting surgery is to create healing fluid, wound fluid, seroma fluid, and that will just collect in the space. So if it does, then that new connection between the hood and the where the engine used to be, isn't going to hold. It'll right. just fall apart because of the fluid in between. So the drain pulls that fluid out so that the skin can stick down to the right. muscle and heal better. Right. There have been a lot of efforts to, because the drains are inconvenient.
0: They are not pleasant. Yeah,
1: and painful at times, and patients just want to get them out, and I, I, I can't blame them. But if you don't put them in, then it leads to problems. So there's been a lot of effort to try to reduce the drain length or not to put drains in at all but we still haven't found that well, solution.
0: And for those that are getting ready to go through a treatment such as this, if you're listening and you have to have a mastectomy, I mean that's what that's what I had to have, and I had the drains, I had four of them, and they are not pleasant, but I kept thinking about it as this is one step closer to being done. I am one step closer to being done. Each and every step that I made, and so yeah, they weren't the greatest things in the world, but you know what? As soon as that, because you monitor the amount of fluid that that comes out into those little, they're like little plastic grenade-like things and once that liquid goes down then they remove the drains. Well, every step along the way that as the liquid is is becoming less and less and then as they remove the drains, it's it's just one step closer to having this all put behind me. So, yes, it's not pleasant, but you are moving forward in your journey and it's it's you'll get there.
1: Yeah. It'll, you can see the end game coming. Exactly.
0: Yeah. What kinds of things can you recommend? To women, for how to prepare, so things that they might need to know, they should get ahead of time, like prior to surgery or even after surgery, in order to better better prepare themselves.
1: Yeah, I think it's important to. It depends on the type of surgery that you're going to have. You know, we have some uh, pictures that we can show the patients and illustrations. Sometimes the plastic surgeons who do the reconstruction will show cases um, that have been, you know, women who've had surgery in the past. And you should ask for both the good and the bad outcomes so that you can see both, set the expectations correctly. But really the resources I tell my patients to go to would be the American Cancer Society website and the uh, National Cancer Institute, part of the NIH. Those are really good resources. The Susan Komen has a pretty good web presence with Mm -hmm. a lot of information on that as well.
0: Right, right. And information is, is meant to empower you So physical expectations, what, so I used to run marathons prior to getting diagnosed with um, cancer and I was, I was running maybe like five miles at a time right up to before I was diagnosed. And then as soon as I had surgery, it was just, it was almost immediate, like, okay, I can't do that anymore. Like, so physical expectations, what can women expect those first few weeks after?
1: Yeah, the physical activity really depends on the type of surgery that you have. The easiest recovery is the lumpectomy and radiation. Usually, we can get patients back to doing what they did before within a week or so uh, with some limited activity, but I I usually tell my patients just to plan on taking about a week off from from work and uh, then, then going back. Now, if you have a mastectomy, Without reconstruction, it's a little bit longer than that. It might be about two to three weeks. Right. Then if you have reconstruction, it depends on the type of reconstruction that you have. There's right. a couple different types. One is you know, an implant or tissue expander is put in. That is uh, something that in some patients can keep them out of work for up to four weeks or so. The more intense type of reconstruction is a flap where right. tissues move from one part of the body to make a new breast. And that usually requires three or four days in the hospital and uh, prolonged recovery, at least six weeks because it's additional incisions for where you take the tissue. So we usually try to get patients back on their feet and active as soon as possible. Haven't had any problems with wound healing or anything like that by getting people. It's more just the pain control,
0: right? Uh, right.
1: Make sure that's under. And then
0: learning to move again too. Like if you have a if you have a mastectomy, like being able to raise your arms like you used to is going to take a little bit more time to re- regain that range of motion.
1: That's right. so you know we use physical therapists a lot in our practice to get the patients at least evaluated and to give them some exercises they can do to get that range of motion back and even some of the strength because one of the things we don't want to see is restrictions from the uh, from the surgery you know if you don't use for instance your shoulder and get the shoulder mobilized quickly it can lead to some decreased range of motion long term right um, which can lead to additional problems
0: i remember trying to get into my refrigerator and i it took all of my strength to open the left side and what i wanted was on the right side and then i took <laughs> all of the strength to get what i wanted. Open the right side, and I open it, and then it was like on the top darn shelf, and I was like, okay, this is not working. I just had to like laugh at myself in that <laughs> moment, but it funny, gets yeah. better. It gets much better. Okay, so you had mentioned before the sentinel known biopsy. What What is that?
1: Yeah, so you know, one of the first places that breast cancer can spread are to the lymph nodes underneath the arm, and the cancer cells basically travel through these little uh, channels called lymphatics, and it's collected by these little lima bean sized glands underneath your arm. And we want to find out if the breast cancer has gotten to those lymph nodes because it changes the staging, it changes the treatment, gives us a better idea about how to treat the patient more effectively. And in the past, we used to, you know, 15 years ago, it was routine in every breast cancer patient to remove basically all the lymph nodes from that area underneath the arm led to a lot of long-term problems with numbness and potential swelling called lymphedema of the arm. But most of the time when we took those lymph nodes out, there there wasn't any cancer. So we tried to come up with a way to spare that intense surgery in women who didn't need it. So the first step was, hey, can we identify the lymph nodes that drain the tumor in the Mm -hmm. breast? Because that's where there's going to be cancer. And if we can just remove one or two of those lymph nodes and they're okay, right. then we don't re- need to remove the rest of them. Right. And that's called a sentinel node biopsy. And that worked great. And so we eliminated doing those unnecessary Much. dissections, right. surgery in a vast majority of women. And then we took the next step and found out that even women that had a lymph node involved that we found on the sentinel lymph node, they didn't necessarily need all the lymph nodes removed either. So they're that area could be treated with radiation with uh, fewer side effects. Right. So we've really gotten away from doing complete lymph node dissections unless you know we know that the lymph nodes are definitely involved.
0: And so the fact that you guys are able to do that nowadays helps reduce that chance of developing lymphedema. Right. Right? Which is, for those that don't know, that's the that swelling.
1: Yeah, swelling of the, can be anywhere from the upper arm down to the wrist. And even on the chest wall, The lymphatic channels just aren't draining well because those lymph nodes are removed, so the fluid backs up, leads to to swelling. So we don't see that very often now. We still see it, and when we do, we're aggressive with uh, measures to um, help with the drainage and uh, prevent it from becoming a big problem.
0: Right. Okay, so let's talk real quick, um, the day of the surgery. So on the day of the surgery, you go in, you get yourself all prepped up, and doctors always come by and, you know, greet you beforehand, whatever. The anesthesiologist becomes my best friend because they give me that chill medicine right before going into to surgery. That being said, I still remember very vividly That moment when I went in, because I was just an idiot and was looking around and soaking up the room. I don't know why. That's just a very bad idea. If you're listening, don't do that. And so I remember way more than I should. And somebody gave me the best piece of advice ever when you're going into any surgery, really. They said, don't look around. Don't look around. Instead, when your mind is starting to race and you're trying to focus on something because maybe you're a little scared, focus on one nurse. Pick mm-hmm. one person and be able to write a book about that one person. Their eyes, their face, their name, anything and everything about them. Make that your job for your brain in that moment. And the rest of the room, you won't remember. And so I did that for my second surgery. And I don't remember hardly anything about it. And I've told a couple of other women this trick that was passed on to me as well. And they're like, oh my gosh, that was the best piece mm-hmm. of advice in, in, in that particular moment. So I guess my, my question for you is... Do you have any suggestions or thoughts on some advice for that moment, the day that they're rolling in to surgery? Something they should remember.
1: Yeah. Well, interestingly, everybody's different, mm-hmm. and what I find is that it should start really like the night before or the morning before is to try to do some relaxation methods so that when you get to the point where you're rolling back, you're more in a relaxed state, right? And it, you know, medicine that can be given beforehand helps too. Right. But I think that's that's really it. Like you're at the point now where all you need to think about is concentrating on just being as chill as you can, right. and uh, whatever cues help you. You know, I think I think your idea is a really good one. I hadn't heard that before. Yeah. But I'm gonna try it.
0: Oh, um, oh, it's great. My <laughs>
1: it's great. And uh, it's it's because there's a lot going on on yeah. that day. And yeah. so uh, anything that can take your mind off of that is a good
0: idea. Yeah, exactly. And to remind yourself, too, that you're one step closer to being done. You're right. one step closer to being done with it all. So follow-up care, immediate follow-up care, they'll come and, and, and check in like a couple of weeks later. But what is the long-term follow-up care look like, like for the next five, 10 years? They come every six months or?
1: Yeah, um, I think it's different depending on the type, the biology of the cancer and the stage. But essentially, we see... As a surgeon, I'll see all my patients every six months or they'll be seen by our office every six months. Sometimes, you know, once they're doing well, we'll have our nurse practitioner who's very good at follow-up, see the patients, and, and, and those visits are not only to check for any evidence of recurrence but or the cancer coming back, but also just to make sure that there's no side effects from the treatment that need to be addressed, whether they're emotional side effects or physical side effects, so we monitor for that closely.
0: Right. Okay. I want to shift forward just a little bit and talk for a moment about breast density. There's been a new law here in Georgia, Margie's Law. It's now in effect. I'm excited about the law because I think information is meant to empower us. And, you know, breast density basically when the, – the law is basically saying that when women go and have a mammogram that they have to have on the report saying what their breast density is, which is important because – my understanding that is that if you have dense breasts, it's hard to detect the cancer within those dense breasts. That being said, again, we had already said before that there's not just a one-stop shop with medicine having that answer. Every everybody has their own family history. They have, you know, their their body chemistry. Their cancer is different, and and even their breast density is different. And so you kind of have to weigh. It's not. Like for me, I have the, the BRCA2 mutation. Well, it's not just examine your DNA and that's the answer or examine your breast density and that's the answer. It's kind of all of these are very important and, and valid little puzzle pieces and kind of putting together to understand. But there is something called your overall lifetime risk, right? And I've heard of the Tire-Cuzak model, mm-hmm. right? And so what is what is that? That's
1: Yeah, so couple things first of all the breast density legislation i think it's a good thing and the main reason is because we don't want women to think that just because their mammogram was normal that there's no way that they can have breast cancer right dense breast hides breast cancer right so if you have your mammogram last month and you feel a lump the next month it doesn't mean it's that the lump's okay. Right. You, know, you still need to come in and get evaluated. And if you're really high risk because of a family history and you have dense breasts, then we'll do other uh, types of imaging like breast MRI to find things that the mammogram would miss. Right. With the Tyra score is there have been efforts to try to quantify someone's a woman's lifetime risk mm-hmm. of getting breast cancer. So Tyra there have been other models in the past where you just plug in factors and it spits out, you know, computer program spits out a, a lifetime risk. And the ones in the past have not been real accurate. Mm-hmm. So Tyra kind of brought all the good things from the other risk models and, and made this risk model where it takes into account your family history, a lot of hormonal factors like women who have early onset for the first period mm-hmm. um, and then late onset first childbirth. That's a period of unopposed estrogen, and that's thought to, the longer that period, is, it's thought to increase the lifetime risk of breast right. cancer. Hormonal factors, family history, and now the new Tyracuse actually has breast density in it. So yeah, okay, good. Increased density in your breast, not only is it harder to find breast cancer, but um, it's also a risk factor. So you put all this information in, and then it computes a five-year risk, a 10-year risk, and then a lifetime risk. Right. We consider anybody who's got a lifetime risk over 20% to be, quote, high risk and need to be monitored a little bit more closely. And that's when we use other imaging in addition to the mammograms such as MRI and ultrasound.
0: And, and just surveillance, just watch. And not, the point of it is n- not to panic, but to be mindful about your body inside and out and to be mindful about needing to get the screening done so that you can be proactive because if you, ca- if you do end up getting cancer, the sooner you catch it, the better your prognosis. So you want to make sure that if you know that you have, say, dense breasts, that you know about it, and then as you said, you know that if you feel a lump, that you need to follow through. Don't panic, but you do need to go to your provider and you need to follow through and find out what exactly is going on.
1: Exactly, so a lot of the imaging centers that do mammography will actually calculate the Tyra score. They'll ask you a bunch of questions and they'll be able to tell you right on the spot what you're, it'll be in the report. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times it'll recommend if you, know, if you have a high percentage of developing breast cancer, then you should look at alternative methods of screening in addition to the mammogram. Right. Now, some of the other things we can do for some women are there's endocrine therapy, so like getting back to the estrogen receptor. So not only do we use that to treat breast cancer by blocking it, we can also use it to prevent breast cancer. So the same pills that are given to women with breast cancer to block their hormones can be given to women that are at very high risk and it's that they have been shown to decrease the breast cancer occurrence over ten years by fifty percent, cut it in half. So mm-hmm. let's say you have a ten-year risk of ten percent, cut it to five percent. Yeah. Problem is, there's some side effects, and and that's right. always the the issue is you know the hot flashes and things like that that deal with when you take that medicine. But right. it's highly effective.
0: Yeah. Well, I do want to I guess close up by asking one one last question here what is any one thing that you would want women that say are diagnosed today or tomorrow to walk away from this podcast knowing?
1: Well, that's a really good question because a lot of women think that breast cancer is a death sentence and it's anything but that. We have developed treatments now that even if a woman gets metastatic breast cancer, meaning it's spread to other areas of the body, there are multiple treatments, especially if the tumor has the estrogen receptor, that if you fail one, you can go to the next one. Mm-hmm. Fail that one, you can go to the next one. They're, they're not all chemotherapy. Mm-hmm. So a lot of them are based on uh, hormone blockade. And so that's been really exciting. So first of all, the chance of getting a recurrence has gone down tremendously because of the treatments that we give after surgery to prevent, like the insurance treatments, whether it's chemo, hormonal therapy. But even if you get a recurrence, it doesn't mean it's a death sentence. So that's what I like to to end with. And just to know that even if your lymph nodes are positive, your long-term survival rates are very, very high in Mm -hmm. the 80% plus range, which is for cancer is really, really good.
0: That is definitely, definitely encouraging. So anybody out there listening, make sure you talk to your provider, that you do your screenings and you follow through with those questions because I like what you said. It's not, it's not a death sentence, but you do need to follow through and be proactive. So thank you so much for taking the time and joining us here today. Really appreciate hearing all that you had to say about, about breast basics.
1: Well, thanks for having me.
0: And thank you too for those of you at home listening. It's my hope that we're all able to learn a little bit more and be that much more informed on the science and some of these breast cancer basics from having had the opportunity to speak with Dr. Burek today. Arm yourself with a complete understanding of your own cancer. Go to your doctor, ask your questions, and be proactive. For more information, please visit our online Breast Cancer Resource Center at www.togetherweweather. Org. And please share this Keepers of the Flame podcast so that other women can find a bit of light in their own journeys through this awful disease. I look forward to speaking with you all again soon. Until then, remember that together we weather this storm. You are never alone.